I remember this feeling that it was a sink or swim moment. It was, I knew that there was a serious demand that was going to come that would either crush my company and like a tidal wave that was going to wipe us away, or we were going to have to learn how to surf this massive wave. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Damon Gersh. Damon is the president and CEO of Maxon's Restoration, Inc. He's a winner of the Ernst & Young EOY Award, the Fast Company Award for Leadership, Inc. 500 and Inc. 5000 Awards. He's a past president of the Entrepreneurs Organization New York City chapter, as am I, and uh, that's where Damon and I uh, got to know each other. He's a co-founder of Gathering of Titans Annual Entrepreneurial Conclave, which I got to tell you, gets together some amazing entrepreneurs every year. He's the founder and past president of Restoration Affiliates. We're going to be talking about that one, actually, a national industry affiliate association. He's, he does nonprofit work with a, with a uh, community arts organization. He's a, he, uh, a lead singer and guitar player in a local band, Rocksteady, and he lives in Port Washington with his, uh, with his wife, who's a, an amazing artist, and, and his kids. And I got to tell you, you can look at his whole bio on the, uh, in the show notes, but uh, I'm personally excited to have Damon here because Damon and I have known each other uh, for over a decade, originally through Entrepreneurs Organization. He was a great support of mine when I became president because he had been president before. Um, he's a client, he's a friend, he's an amazing entrepreneur, and I'm so excited to have you on the, on the podcast here, Damon. Corey, thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. So, Damon, before we get into, you know, I, I, I'm going to want to talk about your company and the, the deals you're doing now and a lot, all your wisdom you have that's going to be phenomenal for other people. But before we go there, I want to take you back. And when you were a little kid growing up, what did you want to be? Because I'm guessing uh, the founder of a uh, restoration company might not have been it, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, I always say that uh, very few people in my industry, when they were kids, dreamed of cleaning up after people's messes when they grow up. Uh, so for me, it was uh, to be a rock star and to be an athlete. Those were the two things I remember. I love it. So you you, you played out a little bit of the of the rock star stuff in your uh, by by playing in, in a band, right? <laughs> That's right. So I love it. So uh, and what? However, you define this. What was your first real business? My first real business was this business. I started it when I was twenty one with my dad. Actually, wow. Uh, so I. Growing up in this business, he had another company uh, that I worked in when I was a teenager. So I did kind of grow up in the industry. And then uh, my dad was 60 years older than me. So I was 21 and he was 81. So he was basically at the end of his career and I was at the start of mine. And we put this thing together. My dad is Max. I'm his son. So we're Max. That's where the name came from. But uh, I started this uh, right out of college. Wow. So talk a little bit about what uh, Maxon's does, and then we're going to get into some of the real interesting things that you've done to grow that business uh, inorganically over, over, you know, over the years. Sure. So Maxon's is a disaster restoration specialist. So we help people, companies uh, recover from the effects of disasters, large and small, everything from small fires to massive floods, storms. Been involved in uh, once in a lifetime experiences. Nine eleven, we cleaned up Lower Manhattan after the dust fallout. So, just about any emergency property damage that needs emergency response and skilled labor to uh, get the job done. So, you know, one of the things that I'll never forget, uh, and I want to go back to that nine eleven situation and story and the conversation of skilled labor in a moment. But one of the things I'll never forget is uh, I uh, was president of the uh, of Entrepreneurs Organization New York chapter uh, when uh, Superstorm Sandy hit, and uh, one of the things we did was put together a uh, a panel not just for EO members but for really any entrepreneur who was impacted by the storm. And Damon played a huge role in that in in just donating his time 
and expertise to help uh, these entrepreneurs whose businesses had been devastated by the storm. So, um, you know, I'll never forget that, Damon. Thank you. Yeah, they say experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. So I have a lot of experience to share with people who've uh, gone through unexpected and unwelcome disasters. Yeah, so let's let's go back to 9-11 because, uh, you know, David, you were running a very successful uh, business already uh, prior to that. But, you know, that was a, a, you know, a turning point in a way, or at least, you know, took you to the next level. And part of the reason that happened was uh, you would you did what I would consider a deal in terms of, you know, what you locked up because of this choke point concept that I know you talk about. So I'd love you to tell the listeners that that story, uh, and, you know, and what happened during that time and what you did uh, uh, that made such a difference. Sure. So the uh, concept of identifying the choke point of your business, that was introduced to me by Vern Harnish as part of the Birthing a Giants program that was uh, an Inc. Uh, MIT EO program uh, uh, that I went through. And it was based on John Rockefeller uh, uh, principles of business. But his uh, question to the class was, what's the choke point of your business? Told the story about how John Rockefeller bought the company that manufactured the metal rings that held the oil barrels together, that he couldn't prevent his competitors from uh, getting oil, but he could prevent them from actually barreling it. So I remember sitting in that class and thinking, what is the choke point of my business? And I really didn't have an answer. and. For the next half hour or so, I just heard whatever they were talking about in the background as I wrestled with this problem. And I realized that the choke point of my business is skilled labor, people that know what they're doing after a property damage, which involves people's health and safety, can't just bring in unskilled people. And I realized that whoever controls that limited labor pool, people that know how to handle mold, smoke, dust, fire which is a very limited set of the population. I doubt many of your listeners know people that do that. You control that, that you really control uh, the volume of work that you could handle, as well as what your competitors can do. And Damon, of course, uh, in your business, because it is uh, you know, related to uh, events that you can't predict, uh, especially the bigger ones, um, you know, you need labor. It's not like you keep labor on staff, you know, uh, that you need to handle those kind of things. You need to be able to hire and then, you know, it goes up and down, right? Exactly. So uh, we have a variable uh, labor model where we subcontract to a network of uh, crews that we've developed relationships with over many, many years. Some of them work exclusively for us. Others work for us uh, more than half the time. And some of them are kind of lower down the list. And when we get a large project or get a big surge, like recently with the pipe breaks and the cold weather here, uh, we're able to tap that network without having them as fixed labor on our payroll when we don't need them. So, so, it, so it's before 9-11, and at that point you've done, you know, if I want to put it in the concept of deals, which is this podcast is about, you have, you have deals with certain of those labor pools contractors, you know, where you have them exclusive. You have some where there's non-exclusive, but you're the, the majority. And then you have, you know, a bunch of people where uh, you use them as needed, but you're not even the majority, uh, you know, of their time. And of course, when something like 9-11 happens, you need a lot of labor or who, somebody needs a lot of labor, at least. Exactly. I, one of the things, there was a obviously a delay right after the shock of the attacks where um, nobody could do anything and everybody was just in, you know, in disbelief and trying to come to terms with what happened. But knowing that I uh, had the leading disaster restoration company in Manhattan, where the largest disaster that had hit uh, in our territory and the people that would be responsible for that cleanup were insurance and real estate people. And those are the very people that we count as our clients, the leading commercial and residential real estate and insurance claims companies. That's, those are our top vertical markets. Um, so over the years, we have developed this network of subcontractors and uh, have to add that we maintain very good relationships with them. So it's not just about, um, you know, demanding something of them, but also by treating them well, paying them quickly, paying them better than our competitors, we've uh, differentiated ourselves as a source of business to them. So I felt that we had earned the right to ask them for exclusive access. So kind of following on what uh, George Bush said at the time, either you're with us or you're against us. So I uh, had my team and we had a pretty strong uh, leadership team. We were able to delegate big parcels of responsibility out. 
uh, two guys were responsible for calling every crew that we had ever worked with and said, we're going to have a lot of business. We're going to need a lot of labor. And we need to know, are you with us or are you against us? Because we didn't answer. You cannot split your loyalties here. You're either exclusively with us or you're out. And every single company that we called, even the ones that we don't work with very often, they knew that we were going to get the most business and that they were going to get paid and paid well from us, that they were going to be treated well. So all those factors came together where we locked up the entire skilled labor market to a large extent in the New York area before a single project had even been called into our office. Wow. And and, and here's the truth of it, right, Damon, that even though you uh, definitely would have been in the mix and maybe even been the leading candidate because of the reputation you had prior to this on a lot of these contracts. If you didn't have the labor for them, they would have gone elsewhere because you couldn't, you wouldn't have been able to handle them, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, with these labors, unless you take a proactive strategy like that, it's basically first come first serve. So if one of my competitors happened to get a first job before I did and they get that crew, um, that crew's basically lost to me because they're just going to, rolled them from one project to the next. They're within my competitor's control. But by locking them up before we had any projects, once my competitors started to get uh, jobs from their clients, they would call the crews and the crews say, sorry, I'm reserved. I can't work for you. So that happened to my competitors where they had leads and opportunities that they couldn't fulfill because they couldn't supply the labor because we had locked up the market. So a lot of those jobs wound up coming to us that uh, we were the second call on besides the first call jobs. That's great. So to wrap up this uh, little piece, just give a visual because I really want to like now it's intellectual, but I but I know you did something in terms of, you know, not only locking these people up, but right. You know, you had a place in New Jersey. I don't want to give away the story. I want you to tell it like, yeah. you know, I, I, on what you did and, the, and and not only to show the commitment to the to the labor force. Right. To have that deal locked up, but also to show, you know, your strength in the market and be able to get those deals. So, so tell that last piece of the story. Well, uh, the army of skilled labor that we put together exceeded 1,600 people. So uh, you can imagine an army of all uh, black max and shirt wearing people pouring into lower Manhattan, into 3,000 apartments in Battery Park City, 50 office buildings. We restored Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel, countless businesses. So uh, at lunchtime, when the guys take their break, you'd see a sea of a thousand black shirts pouring into Broadway into the delis to get sandwiches. <laughs> uh, so it was remarkable. And it was something that I never could have imagined that we did. And of course, we had to uh, innovate uh, and be resilient because all the requirements change every day, military checkpoints and the access badges. And we devised the military structure because how do you lead a team of 1600 people is uh, that we had no uh, person having more than 10 people reporting to them. So we built a military type reporting structure uh, and uh, that's what we were able to commandeer that and ramp up to that army of labor. And then over uh, several months, we sustained that. And then as uh, we started to clean up lower Manhattan, we were able to tail down and uh, keep our more solid regular crews on for the uh, final, let's say, last half of the work there. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the other thing I want to sort of point out to listeners here, I mean, there's two things, you know, one is, that listen, uh, this choke point concept that was the uh, you know the trigger that came from you know Vern and uh, and Rockville Habits and that kind of stuff that uh, David applied is is a great concept to think about right in your business like where is the choke point where you, where can you dominate that but also you know it it sounds all neat and clean on the back end because of course you say okay uh, you know Damon's company was already the leading company in Manhattan so sure he was likely to get you know all, you know the contracts so. All right. So he locked up the labor. But I got to tell you something, you know, uh, and Damon, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember, you know, I've, it's not, I've heard this story before. Like you made a, a big financial commitment before you had a single contract in hand. And, you know, it's easy to say, hey, you were a leading, leading company to get them. But, you know, there's all kinds of politics. There's it's a disaster time. Who knows what's going on? Nothing was guaranteed. It was it was a crazy time. And what happened was. Um, we had locked up all this labor and we staged them in Long Island City right on the other side of the Midtown Tunnel before we had a project, right? Once they opened up Manhattan. Uh, and then we see our crew chiefs getting called by our competitors with <laughs> jobs and we don't have any jobs yet. So they're saying, hey, I'm getting calls. When are we getting to work, boss? So what are we doing? I said, sit tight. 
and they're getting answers. I said, I'm going to pay you guys, even if we sit in the parking lot all day long. This is hundreds and hundreds of people on the first day. And then they said, okay, as long as you pay us, we're fine. And I said, I don't care if it goes on for a week. You guys are not working for anybody else. Thank God at about 11 o'clock that morning, we got called by uh, Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel. So we were able to get on the subway and we didn't have to spend that money. But I committed, I think it was costing us over $150,000 a day just to keep that labor force if we didn't get a job. Uh, so it was a risk we took, but it was calculated. I just think the other thing you remind me of is that uh, the I'm putting myself back there and how this all came about. Obviously, education and always be a lifelong learner. And, you know, you never know when a lesson is going to uh, be relevant and you can apply it. But I remember this feeling that it was a sink or swim moment. It was I knew that there was a serious demand that was going to come that would either crush my company and like a tidal wave that was going to wipe us away or we were going to have to learn how to surf this massive wave. And I wasn't going to let my company be swept away. So I'll say necessity is the mother of invention. And we did all these innovations uh, and, you know, kind of thought outside the box creatively, kind of because we had to as a survival mode. And that's the headspace we were in at the time. That's great. It's a great lesson for everybody. So yeah, definitely, definitely think about where those opportunities come up in your business listeners. And um, so Dan, so now, you know, we go on past 9-11, obviously now your company's even higher profile. You've done some of the, you know, most of the major cleanup uh, downtown. Uh, Obviously that's going to help organic growth. You're going to get more referrals. People are more aware of you, but uh, many people might've sat back at that point and said, Hey, you know, I've got a great, I had a great company before I got even bigger company now, the organic growth, you know, rate has gone up because we're more well-known and, you know, uh, et cetera. But you didn't sit and and rest on your laurels. You go out, and this is uh, something, you know, we had the pleasure of working with you on. Uh, You go out and and, uh, create restoration affiliates. Uh, So talk about what that is, was, is, and and why you did it, uh, you know, when you really didn't need to, right? Uh, Theoretically, you know, you could have, you could have rode the wave. Uh, So why'd you do it? What was it? Well, I'll think I'll say that as a CEO, to some extent, you can't be too buried in the details of your day to day business, right? Your job is to be looking ahead. So I'll caution any leaders of their organizations. If you're too busy, then you're probably missing the big picture to get altitude and seeing where your industry going is going, where your company is in that future. And what I saw in my industry, and I know this happening in a lot of industries, is uh, the trend of consolidation. So uh, in my industry, uh, there are big roll-ups. So, uh, you know, national companies coming in, trying to dominate for the large loss market, chasing big storms, uh, earthquakes, hurricanes, things like that. And then there was also proliferation of franchises. uh, And they they pull their resources and have big ad campaigns and uh, saturate the market with a singular brand. So us as an independent Uh, entrepreneurial company, I realized that uh, if you are not affiliated and you stay local, that you can get your lunch eaten slowly, imperceptibly, you'll lose a little bit of piece of business that you would have had the year before because other people are now encroaching into your market. So what I learned is that we needed to be able to service our clients' needs beyond just our own market. At the same time, we also saw that when big opportunities come, that we can always use added support. And we thought that having a national profile, that's an expensive thing for us to do. For us to become a national company and open offices organically, that's heavy lifting of a lot of travel and it's a huge capital investment, a lot of risk. So uh, what we decided to do was to develop an affiliation company. So we sought out the leading entrepreneurial established companies within each of the major markets in the United States. Uh, those companies that have very proud reputations, second or third generation businesses, family businesses with excellent reputations in the industry. And we put the value proposition forth that uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to service your existing accounts for business outside of your market so that they don't seek another national uh, resource that you could lose that business? And wouldn't it be great to have partnerships around the country where you could refer your clients and control that business and that relationship. So we came up with the concept uh, with a couple of core companies in the Northeast of an affiliate program, which in its essence is a strategic 
service and marketing platform. So kind of like what you see in the airlines uh, that we're a member of the One World Alliance, right? Where they're able to keep independent brands, but they're able to kind of connect them to offer more services and reach to their clients. So that's, that's what we did. We reached out to the best and the brightest and uh, started to co-market to national companies. And uh, we refer work to each other. And uh, we've seen a lot of great results from that. Yeah. And, and to drill down on a, on a few things on it, it's interesting. So the first thing listeners should keep in mind is that this is a deal that Damon's done with his competitors. Now, you may say, well, you know, not, you know, it's geographically, you know, split up, right? So, but you could have, you could have taken a different strategy, Damon, right? You could have tried to expand into other geographical areas with your own company and competed with those companies. That could have been an option. You could have also just had, and I think you did have prior to this with some of the companies, some a much more informal kind of referral relationship, you know, where you refer back and forth for jobs that are outside people's geographies or size or capabilities, right? So there were other ways you could have done this. Um, but you, but this is a much more formalized relationship. Yeah, I think uh, when you do it the informal way, there's a lack of accountability, right? And uh, I think without having some clear expectations in writing, it becomes uh, a big opportunity for misunderstandings and uh, you know unfair perception. So I just thought by being really clear about uh, that, whatever works for me works two ways, and we're going to have it in writing. I know that other groups in our industry had tried this before, but they've all failed because they didn't formalize it. It was informal, so they didn't really have, there was no there there. It was kind of an illusion that they were selling to clients. Whereas when you have an actual structured operating agreement and uh, requirements to be a member, it's a little more real. Um, so that was why we went that way, um, just to formalize it. And those failed basically because when a big project came, uh, the knives came out and the fact that they were competitors superseded the fact that they were cooperators. So uh, we we also put some values in a lot of the things we learned about growing companies and building good cultures, establishing that we had a go-giver mentality in our network, that uh, it was what's, what's for the good of the whole is for good of each of us. So there's a lot of an ethos there that uh, and we use that as a filter to attract members and recruit members that shared that, um, that were willing to give to get. Um, and I think just to talk about the other way of doing a roll up ourselves, uh, to get involved in venture capital or, uh, you know, doing mergers and access, that's just not the work that I was interested in doing. Um, and I, I just thought that, uh, that this was a way to build community in the industry. Well, as well among credible, um, you know, just great partners. And we learn a lot from each other as well, which is an added benefit. Yeah, and, and, you know, having been involved in that uh, deal with Damon, I, you know, I can say, you know, they really buttoned a bunch of stuff up. I mean, you know, they have clear, so it's, you know, they don't have to negotiate the, the economic split on every different deal. They have a model for that and they have agreements that are in place uh, on what happens when somebody refers, you know, to, to one client or the other. Um, you know, they have a, they have a governance structure where, you know, there are people on the board of the affiliation, you know, company, uh, uh, you know, so they've really put in place, uh, whether it's the economic model, the contractual model, the governance model, uh, you know, it's significantly different than a loose affiliation. And then, yeah, the culture and the values are important as well. So, I, and it's, and now it's been working for how many years? Uh, it's been a while now, Damon, right? I think, I think we're six or seven years in. Great. And, and I will say that, uh, you know, this was a concept, an idea that we started to discuss. But at some point, uh, you realize that you do need a strong set of advisors, that there's a, a point you reach that you just reach the limits of your understanding. And I was able to come to you as, as a trusted advisor, Corey, and say, here's what we're trying to do. And here's the things that we want to be, things that we don't want. Tell me what's possible. Tell me some options. So the fact that you were able to give me, well, here's A, B, and C. Here's the pros and cons of each we were able to work in collaboration to really come up with a model that works, you know, including being aware of things that I never really considered like antitrust considerations and making sure that we follow those practices and that we don't discuss things like pricing or marketing plans, but that we are very clear on what we can and can't do and how we should and should not operate. So I appreciate all your support. 
helping build that structure. Well, that, that's nice of you to say. Uh, and uh, yeah, listen, that's, you know, what's exciting for me is that's, uh, you know, we love helping clients do deals generally. Uh, and, you know, when it's something that's not uh, the usual, it's even more fun, right? Because, you know, Damon uh, and and the, uh, the others involved really created something uh, that the industry hasn't seen before. And like you said, there were some others that attempted to do some watered down version of it and, and it failed. So, um, yeah, so it was exci- it's exciting to see uh, that not only come together, but now be, uh, you know, it's, it's really worked well for the companies involved for the last six, seven years. And so, you know, let, let's talk about, you know, so, that deal obviously, you know, formalized the referral relationships. It, you know, it it, it solidified the network. Uh, and I guess, you know, what it's done really is right. It's allowed you to compete uh, not only against uh, uh, the nationwide companies to to not lose business, but uh, but even to uh, pitch for other business that you wouldn't have been able to pitch before individually. Isn't that right? That's right. So there's a defensive element to it and an offensive element to it. The defense is that when one of my clients in New York. Uh, who has a regional or national reach has a problem out of state and it's not a place that we travel to, I'm able to refer them and make a connection for them to a trusted partner who's been vetted, who I know, like, and trust and know what their capabilities are. And I stay involved in, uh, in the carry out of that project and they give updates and I'm involved in the relationship just to make sure that everything is going on as kind of my client's liaison. So I maintain that relationship. And so that's a defensive uh, play so that they don't go outside of my circle to a competitor who then, when they're working on that out-of-state thing, says, hey, you know, we covered New York too. And then all of a sudden, uh, I stopped getting business because they've gone with a national company. So that's a defensive element. And yeah, as you've said, the uh, offensive element is, yeah, we're able to go after national companies in a variety of industries, whether it's... uh, retail store chains, um, real estate firms, um, uh, you know, assisted living. There's a lot of uh, vertical markets that we are now able to tap in. We pull our resources and we could have a big presence at a national trade show rather than us spend $50,000 at a trade show. Now we have 26 partners all putting up $2,000 each for that trade show. So uh, the economics and uh, the opportunities it's created have really borne fruit. And I'll say that just recently, uh, we got referred a job that was almost a million and a half dollars at the end of 2018. And uh, it's wonderful. And it was the fruit of all that labor of all the years. It was the largest referral we got from that network. And I thought, well, how do I pay this guy back? And within 24 hours, one of our clients had an issue at a university down in Tennessee, we were able to refer a job that was over $2 million to that same partner. So that was one of those rare occasions where we were able to uh, both see the benefits in a very short period of time. Uh, that's great. And, and so, you know, you, you were, uh, you know, one of the key founders and then the president of restoration affiliates for a while. And then, you know, you've, uh, you've rotated uh, off and someone else is president. And then of course, because you can sit still, you, you, you told me, that's you did something locally. So the thing I want to point out is it's uh, yes, this was definitely a deal with competitors. You hear the advantages, um, but you know you might say, hey, you know they were largely in different ge- geographic areas, um, you know, so they weren't truly competing for the most part. Uh, so that's easier to do. But damn, and you've taken this a step further, uh, you know, because I'm always interested in this conversation. Some people like keep their competitors at a total different distance, and they're, you know, they 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 never spend time with them. And you you've actually made a jump uh, in terms of the local competitors. Talk about that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny how much of a 180 I've made in this, uh, in my thinking on this. I used to take the approach of, uh, you know what? We are, the com- we are the competition and I don't care what anybody else is doing. We just build the best company that we can be and let everything fall where it may, right? And, uh, you know, so to some extent, the benefits were I I didn't compare and contrast and, you know, try to, you know, uh, ride the highs of winning a project, the lows of losing one to a competitor. So to some extent, that was how I operated. But then from my experience with restoration affiliates, realizing that uh, we have so much more in common than we do apart. And uh, there's very few people that have our unique experiences of what we do dealing with disasters and insurance companies and estimating and uh, property. Man- it, it's a very kind of unusual business. So um, while we can't talk about, uh, you know, pricing and 
sales and marketing and strategies within our companies uh, by antitrust rules, uh, there was some overlap that there's a lot of common interests. Like uh, now uh, through Restoration Affiliates, we do buying programs. So we have discounted and rebate buying programs from national suppliers. So the rebates that our members get far exceeds what their annual dues are. So I realized that all these benefits, uh, that that should work locally. So I reached out to about a dozen of our local competitors, again, independent companies, not franchises or national outlets, and ones who I've known for years and years, not necessarily friends with, but who I know have a good reputation for you know being stand-up businessmen and uh, running good operations. And I offered to just have a luncheon together and let's just talk. There were some changes in insurance law in New York that are affecting all of our insurance costs. And I use that as an opportunity for us to have some conversation about some of the issues that we all face uh, in New York specifically um, that we that are non-competitive issues that we could share and collaborate on. You know, a little bit of a complaint session about the industry and what the trends are. Um, but I'll say uh, we've built some good trusted relationships with some of our local competitors. I mean, guys that are right across the street in my backyard who I compete with vigorously every day. But you know what? Uh, we've built, I think, some good relationships that if we were on a job together, we wouldn't be cutthroat. Um, you know, if uh, somebody needs help, we'll call each other. Um, and it's just nice having resources and camaraderie rather than feeling like an island in your industry or in your market. So uh, we've seen benefits. We haven't really seen any downside to it so far. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, it's just something to think about it, listeners, uh, in your business. You know, I think this is default position that we need to keep, you know, our, our uh, competitors at bay. And then, of course, we're not going to share any information because that'll give them an advantage. And I'm sure there's a limit to you know, I don't, I don't, I doubt Damon's opening his books to his competitors or whatever, but, you know, but, um, but the point is that there are, um, you know, there are, uh, I've seen many, many deals of many types in many industries that are done with quote unquote and competitors and, and at least open yourself up to the possibility. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, you may choose not to do it, but make that a conscious choice as opposed to just assuming that you should not be in relationship with your competitors. Absolutely. I, I believe that, you know what, relationships are valuable and they're worth investing in. And you never know if, if that's the limit of where our relationship goes. Fantastic. But you never know uh, how opportunities if, if somebody decides they want to retire and sell to me or if they approach me for some opportunity or if they have a big project that's beyond their capabilities uh, or a joint venture or, you know, like uh, there's just so many opportunities that when you have relationships, we develop trust and camaraderie, uh, you never know where that's going to go. And if you don't have those relationships, you're never going to see those opportunities. Absolutely. So, so there's one other place that I, that I definitely want to go here uh, in terms of deals or sort of a decision. Uh, you know, listen, you built your company to a place where if you decided to sell, sell it externally, you know, it could produce a very significant amount of money for you and you could go whatever you want to do, right? you know, play golf, right. play, play in your rock band, uh, travel the world, or spend some time with your wife, kid, whatever, you know, whatever it is, right? But uh, you have chosen, and we had an interesting conversation because, uh, you know, uh, with some of your other entrepreneurs that are in, you know, your forums or whatever, it's been a, a topic of discussion on, you know, whether you sell, you know, there are some companies that are out there, you know, they're, you know, they, they go into a company and they, they have a model where they're looking to sell it in five years and exit. And, you know, we hear about that a lot. And the truth is, though, the far majority, you hear about that way more than you hear about the far, far, far majority of companies. And the far, far, far majority of companies are not built, you know, I, I mean, there are reasons to build them so you could exit, right? That's a whole different conversation to create systems, have them be less dependent upon you and have them be sellable. But most companies are not built to, to just build up and sell in five years or seven years. But most people, you know, are going to run their companies for a while. And then, you know, they may sell it at some point. But you've made a conscious decision, at least at this point, not to sell your company. And you actually made a conscious decision to do something different to uh, give you the freedom you want without, but, but while still owning your company. So can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I, I could speak for a long time about this, but I'll, I'll try to get to the point, which is, you know, when I first joined DO in 1995, uh, the first speaker I heard was Michael Gerber, author of the E-Myth. And he said, in his screaming style. <laughs> if you work in your business, you're not an entrepreneur. You're a worker. Entrepreneurs work on their business. 
and that hit me like a lightning bolt because I was working in my business. And I realized that the only way that A, the business was going to grow and B, that I was going to get the freedom that entrepreneurship promises was that to get out of the day-to-day of the business. So that started a journey of building systems and processes and growing leaders and structure and all of that stuff that makes a business less dependent upon the owner being in the middle of uh, of you know being the hub of the spoke uh, in the middle of the spokes uh, where every decision has to go through and I uh, learned by uh, reporting and structure and process to have the business uh, operate uh, independent of my involvement and that's a long journey and it takes a lot of work but it was a strategic play because my clear goal of being an entrepreneur and owning a business is to have freedom over your time. It's the only non-renewable resource that we have. And it's an existential point of view that the whole point uh, of having a business is to have an amazing life. So, and the business is part of that. I think too many entrepreneurs uh, define themselves by their business and they limit what the possibilities that a business can really do for them, their families, their communities and in the world beyond just the industry that they serve. David, no question. I'm just going to, you know, it's funny. I did it. Uh, I was interviewed once and uh, I mean, I sort of redefined a word because, you know, in the entrepreneurial community, there's this conversation called lifestyle business. And sometimes that's used in a very derogatory, you know, way, or at least, uh, right. you know, that means small. It means, you know, you know, you have a lifestyle business. And, you know, what I said to the interviewer was that every uh, entrepreneur should have a lifestyle business. Now, by the way, that lifestyle business could be a hundred million dollar company. Right. right? But right. but why 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 do we become entrepreneurs unless we want to create the life and lifestyle that we want to live? We don't want someone else telling us we want to be able to travel when we want to travel. We want to live. We want to live. We want to be able to, you know, uh, be involved with, in, in the causes we believe in and spend time on it, whatever it is. So, you know, my, my assertion is that, you know, if, you, if you're not creating a lifestyle business, whether that's a small, you know, really small business or a huge one, if it's not supporting your lifestyle, why are you doing it? Exactly. I think Tony Robbins says the definition of success is doing what you want, when you want, where you want, with who you want, <laughs> and how you want. Right. Uh, you know, I think so many entrepreneurs get stuck in that mode of startup mode that you have to do everything and be everything and touch everything and control it all. Uh, and you have to understand, and I only learned it through the support of entrepreneurial, other entrepreneurs and coaches, uh, and support and education that that's kind of stage one, but then you have to constantly reinvent yourself as an entrepreneur and let go and trust and give other people opportunity to grow. And, uh, if you do that, uh, with good guidelines and systems that they will grow your business for you and they grow as a result and develop and just become leaders who can run your company for you. And, and and then a lot of people think that, hey, maybe I've done that to some extent, but to really get free, I've got to sell my company, right? If I don't, you know, and that's the way I get free and I sell my company. And by the way, that's the right choice for some people, but uh, it's not the right choice for everybody. It's not the choice you made. And in fact, uh, I know you know some entrepreneurs who sold their company and maybe regretted it a little bit. It's true. Uh, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs who've sold their business. They have a lot of money in the bank, but they've lost their sense of, sense of identity. Uh, they don't know how they contribute to the world. And what they wind up doing is they wind up uh, taking that capital and investing in somebody else's company, which is run by people that they don't necessarily know that well or uh, think a different way. And I I look at it that I've spent all these years building the perfect platform for me. It reflects who I am, my values. Uh, You know, it just, there's so many things about it that I take for granted. Uh, that it just serves me and it serves my team. And why would I take the capital out of this and put it into somebody else's company that was built to serve them? So great. So, so we've been, we've been sort of building up here to what you actually did do instead of selling the company. So, you know, you, you built, you built these systems, you work on the business, not in the business, you got it to a point where it could be sellable, but then you didn't sell it. And so what did you do that's allowed you to, um, uh, well, you, you said to, you said to me in the past, it's basically have your cake and eat it too. That's right. Well, there's a couple of things. One is that I think um, the very base of the pyramid is you have to have a business that is a good business model, right? You have a have to have a business that produces profit for for yourself and for your stakeholders and your staff. If you don't have a good business model that can't produce profit, then you know nothing's going to work. So. Sure. 
let's just get that out of the way. Sure. Now, once you have that, I think the other thing that a lot of entrepreneurs, because of this mindset, this all or nothing black and white thinking that you're talking about, where the only way I'm going to get rich is selling my business, is um, they lock up all their personal wealth in the business, meaning that they bootstrap the business and they reinvest and they never pay themselves. You know, they cover their expenses, but they're not putting savings. They're not putting money on the other side of the line. To me, that's poor risk management, right? Because if some banana truck comes and knocks your business out, then all your personal wealth is locked up and gets taken away with the business. So I think that's another thing is uh, you should be saving personally uh, outside of your business so that you're not so dependent upon a sale. So uh, I think those two things serve as kind of building blocks to what I did which is now um, to have a profitable company and have a strong leadership team with strong systems, processes, nice, diverse, and wide clients. Um, and uh, my team runs the business day-to-day pretty much now. My role is more in strategy and um, um, culture and you know, kind of making those five key decisions a year that a CEO has to make. Uh, but otherwise, they, they run the company. And even now, uh, I, I take the summers off. Uh, I was off for three months this summer and uh, my phone didn't really ring once. My team is great. My two top guys with me over 25 years. So they've helped build that platform in the company and I trust them. And uh, what I did with you was uh, to uh, come up with a structure to come up with a virtual equity program. Otherwise, other people call a phantom stock program. Yeah. And, and so let, let's, uh, I want to delve into that a little bit, but let's, let's make clear. I think the listeners get it, but you know uh, what, what we have, the great, I mean, the great thing about what Damon's told you is he's given you the building blocks to create this model of this company that runs without you. Uh, you know, what we're about to go to is addressing, I wanted to address the risk that we're talking about. And the risk is that when you have a company that's, uh, you know, dependent upon being run without you with a leadership team, the biggest risk you have is losing that leadership team, right? right? So, you know, so that's what part of what we were solving for here is, uh, and listen, you, you know, you had loyal, you know, a loyal leadership team for many other reasons already in terms of how you treated them, the culture and the comp and whatever. But, you know, you wanted to go to the extra level to not only, you know, I call I call these uh, vehicles, whether you do, uh, uh, phantom equity, virtual equity, uh, you know, uh, bonus plans, profit sharing plans, uh, any of the others, option plans, uh, you know, they're attraction and retention vehicles. So sometimes you're using them to attract key employee, you know, uh, executives, and sometimes you're using them for retention purposes. And, you know, so the elements of that are, you know, want, you want them to stay and you also want to reward them for the fact that they do help you create that lifestyle. Right. So, so that uh, talk about your thinking around that, you know, in that context, uh, you know, in terms of your team and, uh, you know, we don't have to get into the specific no. percentages, you know, but, but in terms of, you know, what, uh, you know, what you're thinking on it was. Absolutely. So I think it's known that most entrepreneurial companies are started by people that work for somebody else, learned uh, industry, made relationships, and then they break off and start their own companies. I mean, that's probably how most of your listeners started their company. Um, so, um, and I, I just think that it's unsustainable for an owner to keep a hundred percent and uh, have their top people run the company and while the owner's out traveling the world, uh, expect that, uh, you know, that they're not going to be resentful at some point, uh, sending checks, uh, you know, to the beach in Tahiti somewhere, you know, at some point they're going to say, what are we, what's in it for us? I mean, we're, we're doing all the heavy lifting. So I think there's a pragmatic piece of it there where it is a retention vehicle. And it's also a reward vehicle that these guys have helped me grow this company. And I spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of what precipitated a lot of this was, uh, I just saw, looked ahead that, you know, I now have teenage children. One is a sophomore at Tulane and one's a senior in high school going off to college uh, next year. And I realized that at 2020, after being in this business for decades, that uh, I'm going to be an empty nester and not as anchored to the, um, you know, all the lily games and cheerleading competitions and recitals and all the stuff that I wanted to be there for. And that you know, the business was able to afford me to be there for all those. I didn't want to make that mistake of missing those lifetime moments. So, but now just seeing that uh, next chapter is coming just by uh, what's happening in our household, I devised to talk to entrepreneurs to figure out what a 2020 vision would be. And that's when uh, we're going to be empty nesters. So it was, do I sell the company? Do I 
sell shares? Do I do stock options? Do I give shares? Do I do virtual? So uh, I spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs and those were the stories I heard. Those who sell, most of them regretted it. And then uh, I learned that if you gift shares to your team, actual shares of the company that you complicate your tax table, your, your, I'm sorry, your, um, your cap table and you create a tax consequence because you have to now value the company and then they have to pay taxes on the valued stock and blah, 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 exactly. you know, money, money that they don't have to spend for something that they're not getting immediate benefit of. Right. But the whole thing there was to send the message, listen, we're in this together. I'm not looking to sell this thing. We're, we're going to uh, be on the same page. We're going to all benefit from this company continuing to grow. Rising tide raises all boats. And you have the added security that I'm not going to sell this thing out from under you while you're committing your life to it. And if it's some point that it makes sense for us to sell, that you are participants in that event. In the meantime, we also developed an executive compensation plan where uh, we aligned their compensation to more how an owner gets paid. So they're compensated instead of on commissions and bonuses, they're now aligned on net profit and EBITDA growth. So they understand uh, that there's benefits when we have a great year. And if, God forbid, we have a bad year, that they may not get anything. But I want them to think and act like owners. And uh, the more they grow that EBIT, the more share they get of that. So aligning incentives and making sure that they know that they're uh, going to be taken care of no matter what happens uh, so that I can go and you know uh, enjoy the next chapter of what awaits me. And that could be entrepreneurial endeavors, travel, other things. Kind of, I'm open to what's next. That's great. So, so you know, listeners, you know, it's a choice, right? Selling your selling a company works for some, uh, uh, and it's not the right choice for others. And and you know, there are alternatives on what you can do. And this is a great example of where doing a deal with your employees, with your key management team, um, obviously with the building blocks that uh, Damon talked about having, uh, you know, in in place to have that be successful. But doing a deal with your management team allows you not to do a deal to sell a company and, you know, sort of, you know, listen, you heard Damon, uh, you know, was off for three months, uh, you know, this, this year, and he still, he still owns his company. So, uh, so, you know, that, that, that's an alternative to think about. So I really appreciate you uh, bringing that to our listeners, Dan. Pleasure. Um, um, and just one last thing is, you know what, that you have to, if owners are too greedy, uh, they're going to lose their key people. You know, you have to share the wealth, you have to share the opportunity and, Frankly, at the base of all this, uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited about giving them the entrepreneurial journey, which uh, is, is, is something I, I just, I'm coaching them as leaders uh, to take that next leap forward. And it's, I mean, that's really the impact you have as a leader and entrepreneur is to grow other leaders. And that, that's what I hope to do to this program. And I love that you brought that up because I see it all too often where, uh, you know, the owners get, um, you know, Stingy, you know, and, and and listen, there is a balance. There's no question there's a balance because uh, for people who've never started a company, they tend to underestimate what that takes, the risk involved, the work involved, the sleepless nights, the time away from family, certainly in the beginning days. And uh, so, you know, there there, there is this balance between uh, employees uh, undervaluing that, therefore overvaluing their contribution, uh, undervaluing the risk factor. But at the same time, there is this tendency of some owners uh, really to uh, not be generous enough with the key people who've helped them build uh, their company, uh, and then they don't end up with a solid, a solid of a management team and a structure and a culture that allows them to, you know, achieve what Damon's been able to achieve. Don't grip the club. Don't grip the club too tight, as they say. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, Damon, before I ask you a final question here, uh, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, you know, if people want to uh, find your company, you, you know, what's what's the best place for them to, you know, contact you or, or check out your website or whatever? Well, our website is maxons.com, M-A-X-O-N-S.com. You can call us anytime at 1-800-3-MAXONS. And I hope you never need us, but if you do, know that uh, we'll be there for, for you. That's great. So, David, my, my final question on the podcast always, and you've alluded to some of this already, uh, but as you know, because we know each other, you know, authenticity is a huge value of mine. And is the reason my, you know, book is called Authentic Negotiating. And um, and for me, authenticity is not about external morals or even about integrity, which is in and of itself important. But it's more about uh, 
alignment within a truth, alignment with your values, like knowing who you are and then creating a life in a company that is aligned with that, making your business decisions um, out of that. And, you know, again, you've alluded to some of this, but, you know, what do you do? So, you know, for example, you made that decision not to sell your company, but to, uh, you know, but to do uh, the virtual equity plan and, uh, you know, and uh, compensation plan instead. Um, how do you, what do you do to come to those conclusions uh, in business and deals to assure that your business decisions are aligned with, you know, are authentic to who you are? I think that's an excellent question. And, you know, as you're saying it, I'm thinking what I'm doing works for me and it may not work for your listeners. I mean, everybody is different. Everybody's situation is different. And I'll tell you, for me, uh, you have to know what you're about, know what you value. Um, And frankly, getting a big payday is not really important to me. Uh, I, you know, I don't have extravagant lifestyle and all that stuff. What's important to me is making an impact on people's lives uh, and making a difference in the world. So uh, I think, how do I get there is, uh, I have to tell you through the entrepreneur organization and being in a entrepreneurial forum where we meet every month and in a confidential environment, we have a lot of uh, learning and, uh, exploration as well as uh, seeing speakers and engaging in conferences just over time uh, you really get a sense of who you are and what you're about and what's important to you and uh, through this I know for me uh, being there with my family and seeing my kids grow up was more important than having a hundred million dollar business so that's a trade-off that I made that I make uh, that works for me because that's what I value so I think just doing the work, taking time out of being busy and uh, having trusted friends who help you kind of hone and hold a mirror up to you and figure out uh, what's important to you. And, you know, looking back and you can kind of see in your history what you value. As an old saying, it says, uh, show me your checkbook and show me your calendar and I'll tell you what you value. Uh, So where you spend your money and where you spend your time is a good shortcut to see what you value. So, um, that, that, those are some of the tools I've used to be clear. And I want to just say that all this is, I call this an experiment because there's no certainty in any of these outcomes. Uh, but uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. But going forward, you kind of just go with the best information you have. Entrepreneurs are comfortable making decisions without all the puzzle pieces. You kind of infer a lot of what you do. But if decisions are being made from a deep place of conviction of who you are, and that they align with what is important to you and what kind of life you have, want to have, and what impact you want to have in the world. Even if you make mistakes, I think that uh, you won't live a life with regrets. Oh, I love it, Damon. Listen, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Always, Corey. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.